HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program is brought to you by Kane Vineyard and Winery, a Napa Valley winery committed to respecting the soil and dedicated to the creation of three Cabernet blends. For more information, visit Kane5.com. I'm Linda Palaccio, host of A Taste of the Past. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and its impact on all of us. I am your host, Kim Kessler, with the Resnick Program for Food Law and Policy at UCLA School of Law, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn, on Heritage Radio Network. Today, we're going to talk about kids and food. We hear so much about both policy challenges, from school lunch to daycare food, and everyday parent struggles to get it right at the dinner table. And I sometimes wonder if we are making this more complicated than it needs to be. As a parent, this topic is front and center for me on a daily basis, and I am thrilled to have experts here to talk about it. Uh, joined me today, we have Pam Koch, who's, with the, who's the executive director of the Lori M. Tisch Center for Food, Education, and Policy, and the former director of food and nutrition at the Children's Aid Society here in New York City, Stefania Patinella, who also taught and lectured extensively on these subjects. So welcome to you both. Thank Thank you. you. It's great to have you. So I want to get started with just hearing from both of you, what is the biggest myth about kids and healthy eating? Stefania, we'll start with you. Oh, juicy. Okay. Um, I think the biggest myth is that um, kids don't like healthy food and that this is an unfightable battle. Um, I think this is all really new, like the idea that um, healthy food is different from unhealthy food, for example, is a really new idea. Um, so in sort of a, you know, if we can all like think about our much more distant past and let's say a couple generations, let's go back like three, four, five, six generations, um, if we, or let's say genera- not just generations, but like really, you know, in your family, so your great-grandmother, great-great-great-grandmother, you realize that um, this conversation about eating and healthy food at the table was not the same as it is now. And we put this conversation in like, I don't know, we put it at the dinner table with parents and kids as if the fight 
is between parents and children, but I, I think that's the wrong place for it. Um, and so if we think about, like, different cultures than American cultures, you know, in Japan, kids are eating seaweed, and in India, kids are eating spicy food a lot um, sooner than kids in America are. And so tastes are kind of really culturally developed. Um, and it's not just like this idea that kids don't like healthy food or don't like spicy food or don't like seaweed or whatever. It's very culturally developed. So I think the big myth is that this is inevitable. It's the way it needs to happen and that it's not something that, um, and that it's like natural or normal. Instead, I think that myth is basically like created by the food industry and by a bunch of really kind of screwed up, uh, government and business policies that we have in this country, which we can talk more about. <laughs> um, screwed up policies. Well, yeah. say, I, I, before hearing from Pam on that question, when you say that the fight is happening at the dinner table, that's not, it yeah. shouldn't be a fight construed as a fight between parents and kids. Yeah. What do you see as the fight? So, Fight is actually happening at dinner table. I'm going to, you know, let's, let's acknowledge that. Kids and parents are gathering around the dinner table, and the parents are saying, eat that, and kids are saying no, and then the parents are saying, what am I going to do? You're not eating anything. Okay, fine, I'll just give up and give you this chicken nugget. The thing is, that what do we think happened before chicken nuggets existed? At a time before chicken nuggets existed, and everyone was just eating at the dinner table, what everyone was eating at the dinner table, and that fight was maybe even still happening. Like, okay, you know, eat what's there, and the kid maybe said no, but it wasn't really. I don't think a fight about um, the food itself it was kind of like a little psychological battle of maybe control that you know children are exerting at two and three and four and five, and that is perfectly normal. Um, but when you enter, you bring in this whole thing about, so you bring in a whole culture where companies are advertising chicken nuggets and then, you know, a million other junky things to kids, directly to kids, undermining parents' influence so that parents are like just stuck in this losing battle where you know, the, the, they're being nagged to death by their kids and they have busy lives and they just give in. And so, yes, the fight is actually happening at the dinner table, but the fight should be, could be happening at a much broader level if, you know, parents and culture, society, kids, everybody kind of realize that, like, you know, we're, there's like a, a situation being created that is difficult for everyone in which there's just kind of a broken food culture. We think that, you know, healthy food is not delicious and delicious food is not healthy. And those things are not necessarily normal or natural. They're kind of ideas created by food companies, just like the idea of kids' food is created by a food company, basically. I think that dichotomy as a parent, I would say that is such a tough thing to deal with because you want to characterize unhealthy foods or you want to use a special treat. Yeah. You, you end up doing this line drawing that you're sort of wanting to avoid. But, Pam, I would love to hear from you. What do you think is the biggest myth about kids and healthy eating? Sure. So to add on to what Stefania said, I totally agree with the idea that it is a myth and it is made up by our culture that kids only like kids' food. And that is unfortunately reinforced by our culture so strongly that I think just saying it again and say, saying kids 
will eat foods that are exposed to them. I think then another big myth that I've encountered uh, on, on top of everything that Stefania said is that parents think that kids aren't interested in and aren't able to help cooking at home. And kids love cooking and love getting involved with cooking at home. And um, just to give you a couple of examples, as we were involved with um, helping to initiate the Kids Cook Monday program, which is part of the Monday's campaign, and we brought a bunch of families in here to see how they would respond to it. And this was kids from toddler up to teenagers. And we were just cooking together and having a great time as a community, and all the parents said, I never thought my kids would like doing this, and I didn't think they could. And mm-hmm. just having them have the experience of cooking with their kids and seeing that their kids liked it and seeing that they got family time out of it was something that I think we should tell more families to to do and get involved and get their kids in the kitchen cooking with them because kids do eat what they get involved with cooking. They are much more likely to eat it, and I think the family can build so much together by doing that. So I want to ask you both about this idea of uh, this idea that kids do like healthy food. So how do you square, how do you know that to be true and how do you square it with when we see headlines about school lunch got healthier and there's now a lot more waste in the school lunch program and these are all these are all um, issues that there's debate around and um, evidence going against that but that was certainly something that got reported in the news a lot. So um, how do you know it to be the case and how do you think about the implications for big policy programs? Um, well, I can start with some of the research that we did back when school lunch was just coming into the to, to being, and it was um, the beginning of what's called the Cook Shop Program that Tony LaCour in New York City thought up and is actually still done in New York City. And basically, we had kids cook in the classroom the recipes of vegetable and whole grains that were going to be served in the lunchroom, and they knew they would be seeing them in the lunchroom. And then we measured who ate those foods when they were offered in the lunchroom, and the kids who cooked them were actually the ones who ate them in the lunchroom and enjoyed them and liked them. And so I think it it's, has to be the exposure around the food that they have to have. To show the other side, with one of the schools that we're working with that had um, a school lunch menu that was more of, you know, what we would think of as kids' food, chicken tenders and mozzarella sticks being the entree, when they switched to healthier foods, the older kids that had been used to those foods for so many years did have a hard time adjusting to it. And, you know, when things such as rice pilaf were served to them, they didn't know what to do with it at first. Um, And, you know, I think we're going to try to follow them longer to see how they get used to it. So I think it's just... They have to be exposed to it, but when they are exposed to it, my experience has been then they can come around and really like those foods and get excited about them and get excited about eating them. So, Stefania, I I want to hear from you about what makes you feel so confident about kids liking healthy foods, and also I know that you did a lot of work at Children's Aid to get kids cooking, so your, your thoughts on the importance of that. Yeah, well, you know, to echo what I'm saying, the holistic approach is really important. Children's Aid Society, and, you know, the reason I know that kids like healthy food is because we serve, uh, what is it, I don't know if you moved or if it's just our connection, but it can't, you sound a little fuzzy, so maybe um, just changing how your phone, I want to hear what you have to say, just changing how your whole Sure. Phone. Um, yeah, so maybe this is better walk this way. Uh, so I told you decided we served about mm, like 7,500 meals uh, a day to kids, and they were all cooked from scratch and all made from whole grains and plant foods and, um, and you know, meats and fish and eggs, and they were really diverse. They were culturally diverse, 
and they were all cooked from scratch. I said that already, but I'm going to say it again because it's an important um it's an important part here. And so I know that kids will eat the food because I saw them eat it every day. Um, and I saw them eat it, you know, with no problem. Um, we, you know, we made the changes in a kind of slow-ish way, but not absurdly slow. Um, so we changed from the sort of more processed menu to a completely from scratch menu within two years. And then it, you know, ran for, let's say, seven years under me, and now it's still still going. So I know that that works. The thing is, as Pam said, you don't just kind of, there's, there's two things that I think we try to do. We try to make the changes um, without the context. So we try to, you know, in, like give kids this healthier food without then having them experience it somehow in a hands-on way, which ignores the fact that, um, first of all, when you're used to something, it's hard to make a change, and also ignores the fact that there's a kind of, like, phobia with new foods that is totally natural and normal in kids and um, that we have to think carefully about how we go about approaching that. The second thing I'm going to say, and this is, you know, really, really close to my heart, is that food needs to be both delicious and nutritious. And obviously what's delicious to one person is a little different from what's delicious to the next. But if we try to change school meals by replacing one processed package-looking food with another processed package-looking food that's just a little bit healthier, I don't think we're doing any kind of service to our palates. And so for us, you know, focusing on the color, the texture, the taste, the diversity, really just so much kind of love and care placed in the menus, including all the love and care of the cooks who are actually cooking it, that's really important to why it works so well because Everyone knew that Modesta made the best, you know, rice and beans and, like, the best chicken and the best platanos and, and that they loved that it came from her kitchen. And so that also encouraged them to eat it because it was, like, with love and with a lot of attention. When you were making those kinds of significant changes to the food program um, at Children's Aid, what, what were some of the reactions and did you have pushback from kids or staff? Hmm. As you were working on. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, I had um, pushback in ways that I didn't expect, and a lot of um, a lot of just uh, like sort of excitement in ways that I didn't necessarily expect. So when we first got in there and did the first training with all of the cooks, and we brought them all together and said, you know, we're thinking about changing the menus. If you had to change things, what would it look like if you had to do this? And for them, you know, all of them basically said, I would cook more like I do at home. I would use more real foods, more fruits and vegetables that are fresh instead of, you know, canned or frozen. Um, and so they, I, you know, we really opened up the conversation to kind of get their input on how things should happen. And so we had very little pushback from the people who everybody always says, is going to give you the most pushback. So the, the kind of the lunch ladies, right? Um, the folks who were really cooking the meals, they were, we were just partners in it and we were just doing this together. Um, now when, you know, we didn't just change the meals, we changed a lot of policies and we, as a, organization just dealt with so many conversations on like the role of food in our um 
you know, in our whole organization, how we deal with kids. And so I remember this like one time, this was after like seven years of making all these changes. And so I was like, okay, guys, so every once in a while you have a bake sale, I noticed, and there's not always the healthiest stuff in this bake sale. Can we talk about the fundraisers and bake sales? And for some reason, all these directors who had been completely partners and had gone along with like massive changes to menus to all these cooking programs and everything, for some reason, this really got them. This was like, this was going over the edge, you know? And so they pushed back pretty hard and they were like, you know what, just leave our big sales alone. And, and I, and I, you know, and there was a really enlightening conversation like, okay, well, I just stepped over that line. Like, and, you know, we didn't drop the conversation entirely, but we didn't like, like, boom, snap our fingers and make changes to big sales at that point, like we had with some other things. So you got to listen to what's, you know, going on in your own school center, home, you know, where people will want to give, get their opinion on it, um, and get their, you know, solicit their partnership, and then where they're pushing back, like, you know, give a little. Yeah, well, in watching any watcher of school nutrition policy also knows big sales are a lightning rod um, and they're yeah. wielded as such in policy to be yeah. as well or they're sometimes threat upon big sales is exaggerated. You know, we're coming for your big yeah. now they're coming for your big sales. <laughs> so It's true. Um, and it was truthfully it was such a small part of what happened that I was like, okay, I'm not gonna you know I'm not gonna take on this fight for the sake of taking on the fight, you know? Right. Um, okay, so we have to take a short break, and then we'll come back, and Pam want to hear from you about nutrition education. You are listening to Signal Dub by Evan Hashi. This is Chris Howell from Cane Vineyard and Winery, calling in from Spring Mountain above the Napa Valley. Thank you for listening to this show. In our industrial world of highly processed food and wine, we support the values of Heritage Radio Network. All of us at Cane encourage you to seek out individuality and beauty in everything you eat and drink. To learn more about us, go to Cane5.com. So, Pam, it's so appropriate to have those kids, by the way, doing the uh, station drop. Um, <laughs> your program you. focuses on nutrition education in schools, um, and I know that you issued a report in the fall about nutrition ed- education programs that are run by outside providers, such as nonprofits, government agencies, and universities that are operating in New York City public schools. So I'm interested to hear from you. Uh, what did you learn about what's happening in New York City schools from the project? Sure. So, um, first of all, why we were interested in this is that is that we just realized as we were talking to people around the city that there were more and more of these programs 
pushing into schools. Um, and obviously a lot more goes on about nutrition in schools than these programs that are pushing in, but they are really becoming a significant player in how children are learning about food in New York City schools. So one of the things we wanted to find out is, one, how many schools were actually receiving these programs, and second, we know that there are some neighborhoods that really have low resources and we would want to have more of these programs in those neighborhoods, and are they getting to the children that need them the most? So what we found was that only 39% of all elementary schools in New York City had any of these programs. And the programs ranged from um, what I talked about before, the cook shop program that actually has 10 sessions and is really pretty significant, often goes over many grades, to other programs that are an excellent experience for students and are one class, one time going to the farmer's market to get a tour that the green market does, which, like I said, is a great experience, but then isn't something that is really having a lot of um, continuation with it over the longer term. So, um, and that we also found that there were some programs that we really were specifically pushing into the schools that are the schools that are in the high poverty neighborhoods, and that was the only thing that was having those schools get the same level of programming as everyone else. So we were happy for the programs that did that. What we then ended up wanting to say from that is that these programs really, we do need policies that allow these into school. We do need, the government was funding most of the programs, at least to some extent, the city government and some state and some federal money, that we need more funding for that. And our goal is that we would have um, up to 80% of schools having those programs within the next couple of years. Great. And what do you think it's important that those programs have an evidence base, meaning that they're based on studies that have been done, showing what works, um, and is that a criteria that you evaluated in the so we, um, very good question. We looked at which of the programs had done evaluation themselves, and most of the programs had done some kind, kind of evaluation, and some of them were more just um, how much the students liked the program and how many they reached, and others had done evaluations that actually were about how much the programs had actually changed students' attitudes towards food and changed their eating behaviors. I think it's important for them to be evidence-based, and as a researcher who's then developed programs that, from federal money that we have had to go into schools, what I think we want to do and what we're really working on doing more is trying to evaluate a lot of these programs that are going into schools to really understand what the impacts are, and what we would really like to do, too, is figure out then... Um, some common evaluation that could be used across all of these programs so we could really figure out the larger impact. The other thing that we think is important is there's been a lot that has been done in the field of nutrition education that really tells us what kinds of things in nutrition education work. So we know that direct experience with food actually is something that helps students get excited and eat more about the, you know, change their eating behaviors. We know that when students really understand the benefits about eating food, but not in a way that's just kind of like, okay, eat this or you're going to not be healthy, but really is like what's in it for them that they're actually going to feel better. They're going to be able to do better in school. They're going to be able to play better in sports or play a musical instrument better that they want to play. That that's the things that make them feel connected to it. So when they experience the food, feel connected to the food, and really believe it's going to personally benefit them, they're more likely to do it. So I think that programs, when they adopt these things that are already known to be effective, even if that program isn't evaluated, as long as it's using evidence-based 
strategies in their programming, then, you know, I think we want to get as many of these programs out there as we can to get experience children to have the kinds of experiences that we know from evidence is changing the way they're thinking about food and what they're eating. And the point that you're saying about what you tell kids about why to eat healthy, so you're saying it's not just this is going to make you healthy, you'll have strong bones, you'll, um, you know, you'll have lots of vitamins, like what, those are the wrong ways of talking about it? Well, those are not the things that are going to typically make kids change how they eat because, as we know, children think that they're going to live forever and, you know, they're just going to be healthy forever and they're not, they're not thinking about those things. So it's not really the, the kinds of messages that they're going to connect to. And so that has been shown in nutrition education to not be as effective at changing behavior. But when you get them connected to the food, that is, is what changes their behavior more. The other thing, and this might not work for really young children, but, and brings us back to what Stefania talked about at the start, is when we work with kids from upper elementary grades and older, we really do talk to them about the food system that we are living in and how challenging it is and how advertisers are trying to trick them and how what's available in our environment isn't the things that are going to be best for our bodies. And you know what? Once kids realize that they're being tricked by the food companies, that, gives, that gets them angry about it, and then they realize that it's, it's not just them. It's a system problem, and that is very empowering to want them to change and want them to kind of beat the system and navigate through this, you know, kind of environment to find the healthy things that are out there, to feel those connections to food, and that's what ends up being the things that actually, you know, really – to use an overused word, empower the kids to want to change what they are doing. Mm-hmm. How do you, um, so I think we just heard a lot of examples of what effective nutrition education can look like and um, the important role that it can have in driving behavior change. Stepping back from that, can you give us a sense of what's actually happening at a national level around nutrition education? Can parents expect that their kids are getting nutrition education in school in some form? Well, what the national studies show is that most kids are getting somewhere between three and ten hours a year of some kind of nutrition education. And I think it really varies a lot. I think that there is, you know, and and you guys probably all remember too, as, as parents, sometimes they think about what they learned, which was a lot of, in the 70s when I was in school, kind of drilling in the four food groups, which is, that's what it was at the time, and, you know, which foods fit into which category, which, which food group, and, mm-hmm. and why to have them. And there is still a lot of that kind of nutrition education that is out there, and I think, which is why we were interested in these other programs, because very often the people that are doing these programs actually are doing them because of their own, you know, finding, finding their passion for food, and so they are going into it really excited about getting kids connected to food in meaningful ways, getting kids, you know, connected to food in ways that make them understand the challenges of our current food environment. And so I think that there is more and more um, of this nutrition education that really is taking on this, you know, getting kids connected to food, to say again, way of thinking about things. And I think that um, 
parents, if you know that, it, that there's nutrition education going on in your school and you're interested in it, should actually ask what kinds of things are being taught and look in your community because there probably are programs that are actually doing things that are teaching kids about cooking. One big thing that we haven't talked about yet on this show is gardening. And as we know, there has been a lot of push to increase school gardens all across the country. And that is another great way that gets kids really connected with food, having experiences that can be connected to the science curriculum, can be connected to the social studies curriculum, and even writing assignments about the garden can be incorporated to what they're learning in school. And at the same time, the kids are getting these real experiences with real food that can get them excited about eating those foods in the future. Do you think, um, Stefania, I guess I'm interested to hear from you about this. So I had the good fortune of visiting Children's Aid Society when you were there and seeing in action all these amazing, like, elementary school-age kids doing team cooking and serving these amazing, delicious things that they had produced. It was incredibly impressive. And my kids were actually with me and idolizing, you know, these other elementary schools. <laughs> had these yeah. amazing cooking skills. So, um so you can see how kids really get engaged and how you had created this culture at Children's Aid that's about that. But I want to ask you about this, what can be a really tricky issue with food, which is that it's such a personal thing and it has such a family dynamic to it. So that when, you're, when you are talking with kids about uh, how to eat and how to be healthy, how do you, um, do you, did you ever have concerns about them hearing that as judgment or even judgment of their own families where they might not be having those kinds of experiences at home and in some cases not even have the ability to have those experiences at home either because of their neighborhood or their own family circumstances? How do you deal with that? Yeah, I mean, it's a great question, and you can think of it as a tricky issue, quote-unquote, or you can think of it as an opportunity. You know, every kid comes from a family that has its own um, culture and ethnicity and um, stories around food and history. And so a lot of times we used um, the cooking class as a time to uh, kind of reconnect with all of that. So, you know, assignments would be things like go back and talk to your family about um, about food and history, and you know, depending on the kids' ages, the questions would be framed differently. But it was essentially to start to open up a conversation at the dinner table, whatever that dinner table looked like, about what the parents' experience of food was or the grandparents' experience of food was, because often you're living in like extended families in a lot of the communities we're working with, which is a blessing. Um, particularly when it comes to food, because there's more memory there at the table. And so you start, we always try to take the approach of healthy food from a celebratory way and not from a kind of punitive way. I think that's the really big difference um, that uh, kind of like switching the conversation from like, um, oh, but our cultures don't have any healthy foods, which is never true, um, to what kinds of healthy foods exist in your cultures, how do you use them, what does celebrations look like to you, you know, where do we go overboard and where is that totally fine sometimes, and where do we go overboard and that's really not fine. Um, and then bringing, so kind of using um, the class environment as a way to bring that conversation to the back to the dinner table. And, um, you know, worked beautifully. We got so many stories out of that. And then, of course, also wherever we could, bringing parents into the room and, again, having them have the discussion about 
um, you know, like if we ever had parent classes, the first class was always dedicated to, like, what do you guys want to learn, you know? Um, what are the things that are most on your mind? What are your big questions? And so instead of just coming in with, like, a prescriptive, you know, um, 10 recipes that we thought we would come in with, we kind of adapt to whatever was happening in the moment and because each center was different and sometimes it was a group of completely Dominican parents and sometimes it was really ethnically diverse and you know it was, it was always always changing um so just how did you do it without without uh sounding preachy because I feel like that's like the million dollar question when you're talking about getting people uh, to about healthy food yeah I think the you know partly what what Pam said, particularly with parents, um, with adults, you know, with like, I would say teenagers on up, um, is talking about or like exploring the politics and the, um, the food justice question. Um, entering it from there makes people understand that it is not just their own personal experience around food, but a kind of an entire thing around them that's framing their own choices. Okay, then within that, the question again comes back to, like, instead of being preachy about, hmm, here's, here's, here's what I learned in these classes. Everybody knows how to eat in a fundamental way. Like, I mean, fundamentally, you put the food in your mouth, you chew it, and that's it. But how to eat, when people, when you ask people what is healthy eating, they give you all the quote-unquote right answers, you know, more fruits and vegetables, more whole foods, more plant foods. They just can't quite seem to connect it with what's happening in their lives, or there's kind of blocks there. Maybe it's a block of not um, being connected or, like, knowing some basic cooking skills, and, you know, then you address that. Or maybe it's a block of not really knowing how to read food labels, and maybe, you know, then you address that. And so asking instead of telling is an important thing, and tapping into innate and cultural wisdom is very important. I want to, uh, we're going to come to the close of our time, but I want to hear from you both about how role models can affect these issues and if you have seen people that have acted as good role models that had an impact on kids. So, Pam, I'll start mm-hmm. first with you. Um, well, I think I'm going to talk about one thing that isn't directly related to food but is is composting, and we've done a lot of classroom composting with uh the classes, and there was one teacher who at first said she would never do this in her classroom, and then she became our composting role model for the school, and the kids took on bringing in their food scraps from home and talking about actually what they had cooked at home to get these food scraps and putting in their compost box, and it just showed how that teacher changing her attitude about this totally changed the way the kids thought about it, too. Thanks, Yeah, it's funny. I have a similar kind of story. Like, I've seen a lot of the role modeling at Children's Aid come from kind of um, the changes within staff. So, for example, one of our teachers in um, in a school in Washington Heights used to be a parent, at, or she was a parent of a child at the school, and um, she began teaching cooking classes. And through her experience in our trainings, she became, like, the biggest convert to healthy eating I've ever seen. And she was so incredibly effective because not only did she know all the parents directly and the kids by, you know, first name and last name middle name and she knew what they had had for breakfast because she saw them walking down the street with it and she had these conversations that were so effective with kids that I never could have had with kids you know and they were just um, 
mesmerized by Miss Luce, and in all of the evaluations, Miss Luce's name was like personally there, you know, 25,000 times. It was incredible. <laughs> so I just realized that the strength and power of one person making a change in her own life that then radiates out to a whole community of people. So I want to thank Stefania Petanella, the former director of food and nutrition at Children's Aid in New York City, and Pam Koch, who is the executive director of the Laurie M. Center for Food Education and Policy at Teachers College at Columbia, for joining me today. And to our listeners, thank you for joining us for Eating Matters on the Heritage Radio Network. The show is available for download at iTunes and Stitcher, where you can also leave comments. We'd love to hear your feedback. I am Kim Kessler, and that will bring us to the close of this episode of Eating Matters. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. <laughs>